This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc hello everyone and welcome to slash film daily today is wednesday november 8th 2023 on today's episode of the show we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to my name is ben pearson i'm an editor at slashfilm.com and i'm joined on today's episode by slash film editor and chief film critic chris evangelista Hello. All right, Chris, let's get into it. Uh, I have been reading something fairly interesting recently. I read a book called The Making of the African Queen or How I Went to Africa with Bogart, Bacall, and Houston and Almost Lost My Mind, which was written by Catherine Hepburn. And I think this was published in the 80s. So this is like decades after the African Queen, the movie came out. But she says in the beginning of the book, like, uh, you know, my memory is not great for some things, but I remember the experience of making this freaking movie like, like, you know, as if it was yesterday, basically. And she just goes through the entire process of what it was like to make this movie from her perspective, which I don't know, I haven't really read very many books from actors perspectives, just about a single topic. Obviously, there are tons of uh, autobiographies and memoirs and things like that that cover like large spans of uh, a person's career. But um, I thought this was kind of a unique thing. I, I don't think I've read anything else quite like this before. Have you ever read a book that was written by either an actor or a director just about the making of one particular thing? I'm trying to think and I don't think I have. And that's such, a, that's such an interesting idea. Like I've read books by directors about like directing in general, but never about like one specific movie. And now I, I kind of wish there was more of that because that's such a cool idea. Yeah. I, I wonder if like, you know, everybody's so um, nervous today about saying the wrong thing and, and like potentially alienating themselves in terms of like, 
you know, pissing off the wrong person and you don't want to like burn bridges with relationships and stuff. And back then it's, it seemed like everybody was much more free flowing <laughs> with whatever criticisms or, or comments they wanted to make about their work. Uh, and, I just realized there's one thing I can think of, and it's a book called, um, song of Spider-Man, the inside story of the most controversial musical in Broadway history. It's about that awful Spider-Man musical. That, oh, yeah. And the guy who co-wrote the musical wrote the book about that. So that's like the only thing I can think of. And that's like really a really good book because it's really just funny about everything that went possibly wrong with that, that production. Man, yeah, I need to check that out because I, I remember that story being announced and like kind of being interested in seeing what a Spider-Man Broadway production would look like. And then it was like a notorious disaster behind the scenes. I never saw, I think there might be some stuff floating around online. I just never bothered to check it out. Did you ever see like any, um, are there like YouTube videos of what it would have looked like or, or anything like that? Do you there know? are, there's videos and there's also like, I think they went on, I want to say like Ellen or one of those shows, they went on and did like a number and it's so like, it's like, oh my God. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I, de I definitely need to check that out uh, and and maybe carve out a little YouTube time to, to do a uh, fall down that rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, I would recommend reading this book, especially if you're a fan of Catherine Hepburn and if you're a fan of um, the African Queen and uh, Humphrey Bogart, there's all sorts of fun stories about you know, how Bogart and John Houston would just like drink all the time. And it's, it's, it's everything that you kind of uh, think that a, a story like this would be. Um, there's lots of stories about how uh, Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart's wife was on the project with them. Like she came along on the trip. And um, so it was a little bit about her relationship with Hepburn as well. And, um, you know, even aside from the writing, which is like amusing in a sort of a almost old timey way, there's a ton of really cool behind the scenes photos in, in this book as well, which I'd never seen before. So um, I would recommend this if you're a fan of yeah those people and, and that kind of book. There is one part where I noticed I, I said something to my wife about it, where like Hepburn is just talking. She's just, you know, writing the book just in the middle of a story. And she's like, yeah. And then Spence came up and uh, and we went over here and we crossed this bridge or whatever. And there's like no context to who she's talking about, but you kind of have to know like, okay, she's talking about Spencer Tracy, who was right. her husband at the time. So like, if you, I guess if you don't, if you're not like completely, if you, if you have no sense of the history of these people in this time, like there may be a couple references that go over your head, but for the most part, it's stuff that's really easy to follow. So um, I just thought that was strange that like her editor was like, should we maybe provide a little bit of context or clarity of who this is or why you're referring to this person? But uh, anyway, so uh, that is called The Making of the African Queen. You can check that out if you can find it somewhere. I found it in like a used bookstore somewhere. Um, okay, let's get into what we've been watching. Chris, I'm very excited to talk to you about Killers of the Flower Moon. This is a movie that I haven't really had a chance to talk about my reaction to on the show. And I don't think you have either. And uh, I want you to go first. What did you think about Martin Scorsese's new movie? Oh, man. I mean, I'm I'm I feel like people at home know, but I'm a, I'm a Martin Scorsese fanboy. I'm just all about Martin Scorsese. So I'm, I'm already in the tank for a Mar new Martin Scorsese movie. But this is uh, a phenomenal movie. And it's 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 a it's like a masterwork. And it's it's a reminder that nobody is doing it like Martin Scorsese, even at I think he's he's in his 80s. And I think he is 80 and no one he's operating on this completely different level. And he's got the energy and the prowess of, of filmmakers like uh, much younger and that he's still able to, to knock it out of the park like this is, is incredible. And it's also like, I don't want to say it feels like a coda to his work, but it almost feels like it is. It's this like 
it's him commenting on his entire career and, and the type of movies he makes, especially, I don't know how you want to, how spoiler you want to get, but they're yeah, very, let's, let's go full spoiler on this if, because it's been out for a little while and I want to talk to you about like the details of it. Right. So if, if people have not seen killers of the flower moon yet, this is your last opportunity to skip ahead a few minutes, dive to your, to your fast forward button. And uh, okay, Chris, go for it. So like the, the very final scene of this movie is devastating and it, it, it creeps up on you. So uh, I feel like people, everyone, everyone knows the basic story of the movie, the, the Osage, they, they get re you know, forced onto new land, uh, I think it's in Oklahoma and that land ends up having oil on it. And of course, you know, insidiously evil white people want that money. And they, they, you know, they feel like the Osage have no right to that money. They, you know, cause they see them as less than human. In mm-hmm. a way. And uh, Robert De Niro's character is this, this wealthy guy. Uh, and he pretends to be a friend to the Osage, but really he and his, his uh, gang of buffoons, they're just a bunch of, uh, <laughs> It's it's weird. This movie is very funny, even though it's incredibly dark and disturbing. It's funny because these characters are just oafs. They're just a bunch of bumbling idiots who uh, carry out this this like this uh, conspiracy. And the only reason they get away with the conspiracy is because they're targeting, uh, you know, minorities. You know, they're targeting people that the the, the rest of the world don't care about, and they mm-hmm. can get away with it until. Until they don't get away with it, basically. But uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, he comes home from World War One. He's he's Robert De Niro's nephew, and uh, right from the start, Robert De Niro basically is just like pushing him to to marry into the Osage because uh, if he does that, he'll he'll inherit all the oil the the the, the titles to the the oil claims. And so uh, Lily Gladstone plays an Osage woman. Uh, she is so good in this movie. Oh my god, just one of the. Uh, this sounds like hyperbole, but it's like one of the best performances in a Scorsese movie I, like I've ever seen. It's it's that good. It's so quiet, you know. She's so still. She's, she does so much with stillness in this movie. She has such a presence. She has a, she has this way of. I think it's like her eyes. She has this way of conveying so much with her eyes, and it's that's not an easy feat. And uh, every every time every time she's on screen, it's just like Jesus Christ. This is such a. I'm I'm rambling a lot to get to the ending here. So anyway, a uh, bunch of. A bunch of Osage people keep getting murdered one by one. I, they they don't show all the murders, but I think at one point they say it's like in the 30s. It's like a, a, an alarming amount of people. And eventually the FBI steps in and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character uh, testifies against his uncle and, and Robert De Niro goes to jail for the crimes. And, and rather than giving us uh, the, the, the standard true story epilogue where there's like titles on the screen that say like, here's what happened to the character. Uh, Scorsese does this thing where he has this like true crime radio play and it's wrapping up what happened to all the characters. And it's, it's, it's amusing in a way because they're all doing like old timey radio voices and there's like sound effects. And then the very, very last beat is Scorsese himself steps out onto stage to read what happened to Lily Gladstone's character, Molly Burkhardt. And I can't remember the exact wording, but the way it's presented is that it's Scorsese almost like commenting on why he made the movie. And it's also him reflecting on what he, you know, he's, he's telling someone else's story here and Mm -hmm. it's not his story to tell. And he even knows that he's like acknowledging that in a way that he's telling this story as an outsider. You know, he's a white man telling this story about Osage people, you know, indigenous people being, uh, brutally murdered and 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 brutalized and, and and victimized by by white people, and it's almost like he's turning like the spotlight back on himself to be like I you know I I I I made this movie, but you know I I 
I, I realize I'm in a way almost complicit because you know, I'm, I'm a white guy telling this story mm-hmm. and that like floored me. I was just like, Jesus Christ, like knock the wind out of me just the way, cause he does it. it you, you don't really see it coming. And like that final shot is like an all timer. The final moment is an all timer. And uh, just this, you know, I know that a lot of people have said like this movie is long and it's a long movie. It's three hours and 30 minutes, almost four hours long, but it honestly felt like it, it it's paced so well. Uh, uh, Thelma Schumacher is, you know, one of the best editors in the game and she knows exactly how to cut this movie in a way that it feels long, but it feels long in a way it needs to feel long because you want to feel the passage of time. You, the movie takes place over uh, several years mm-hmm. uh, and you feel those years going by. You also, and it's so, uh, I feel like I'm rambling here, but no, good movie. No. Yeah, no, that's great. I, you know, Chris, I, I have to admit that when I walked out of the theater, I was like, mm, I didn't love that. I loved parts about it. And, and you know, everything that you've said, I've, I've agreed with, um, especially about the ending, which has been very divisive. And I, I've seen a lot of people talk about how that kind of like took them out of the experience. But I, I agree. And I read the same thing into it where it was like almost Scorsese, like commenting on, you know, like almost explicitly commenting on like, you know, I am not necessarily the the correct person to tell the story. And that's kind of like, you know, throughout the movie, I kind of felt myself wishing that we could see this story told from the Osage perspective more. And I know that, you know, Scorsese reworked this movie to in order to incorporate their perspective a little bit more than, you know, the original draft uh, indicated. Um, but I felt like it didn't go more enough. I feel like there's been a lot of talk about how Lily Gladstone's character has been is sort of like sidelined for a big chunk of the movie. And I really, really, really felt her absence there. And like, she is being essentially being poisoned for the back, whatever it is, 45 minutes hour of the movie or whatever. Um, and you kind of don't really get inside her head as much as I wanted to, like, I, especially because she has that one confrontation with DiCaprio's character where she asks him, you know, basically like point blank, Hey, did you, poisoned me like what did you know what you were putting in this medicine kind of thing and I, I wanted more you know their, their relationship is the beating heart of this story but I wanted more clarity uh, of what these characters were thinking and maybe that's maybe that's my problem maybe the you know on rewatch like that is the point of the movie is that we don't get the answers to that but in the moment I, I just felt like you know as you said this is a very long movie and I, I wish that there was a little bit more clarity to the resolution uh, See, between the, that relationship. The way I read that scene is that it, it's it's the it's the movie's way of showing that Ernest Burk- Burkhart is is just as bad as everyone else. Like he wants to think he's better, you know. He 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 you know he get, he gets up on the stand in court and he says like, "No, I love my wife," and he may believe he loves his wife, but he still poisoned her Mm -hmm. and when he finally has a chance to come clean and admit that like oh i i did this and i'm sorry he can't do it he can't bring himself to to like be honest with this woman even Mm -hmm. even when all is lost and he has nothing left to lose he still like blows it in the end and um so that's how i read that scene yeah and and that's a yeah that's a certainly a valid reading and i don't know i just felt you know you mentioned Thelma Schumacher, who was like incredible, but I, I felt like several of these uh, scenes were kind of cyclical and repetitive. And like, I, I understand to a certain degree why Scorsese would want to um, essentially go back, uh, you know, tell this story in, in a way that is accurate to, you know, I, I read David Grant's book, which is 
which this movie is based on. And it seems accurate to that and is accurate to real life history. But there's something about the adaptation of like, there, there, there's maybe one or two too many scenes in my view where DiCaprio goes to, you know, a campsite and a character actor who looks like he's been near beaten to death and is wearing, you know, old Western clothes and has like a mustache that looks like a push broom or whatever, um, you know, just says, okay, yeah, I'll go kill somebody for you or whatever. Like there, that, um, the, the cycle of violence and, and, uh, complicity that this movie is about, I just felt like we got it at a certain point and it didn't really need to continue to um, show those moments over and over again because it wasn't really adding anything new to my experience as a viewer of like, okay, you did a great job laying all this out. I understand. And like, yes, I understand these instances, these interactions really happened, but like maybe in the, in the art of adaptation, could have tightened it up a little bit. I don't know. This is, you know, I, I'm, I now feel like I'm a villain because I'm one of the people who's telling Scorsese that he should have made a shorter movie. But no, um, I mean, I, I think that's valid. I, I, you know, I, I, the movie worked for me. Absolutely. But I, I definitely agree that they probably could have trimmed a few of those scenes at the same time. I really like those scenes because I really like these, these old tiny <laughs> cowboy actors are just like, oh, I'll go out and kill them for you. And they all yeah. have these voices. They just, I don't know. <laughs> It's just something about it worked for me, but I, I definitely see what you're saying. I don't, I don't think you're, 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 you're off base by saying it. Uh, I also just want to give a quick shout out to um, Brandon Fraser and uh, John Lithgow, who I feel like have gotten, I don't know, completely murdered on film Twitter for some reason for their work in this movie. But I, I, I went into this film having seen a lot of people be like, Jesus Christ, Brandon Fraser in this movie is yeah. awful. Like whatever. And I, I went in like, almost gripping the edge of my my seat, just like bracing for whatever is going to happen. And I was like, oh, that's it? He's just yeah. kind of giving a normal performance? I don't know what these people are talking about. I'm so I'm so annoyed by that because he does exactly that. Like he's doing exactly what that character needs to do. That character is supposed to be big and loud and steamrolling over. And it works perfectly in the movie. And like that part where he's like yelling at the camera and he's like, dumb boy. I was laughing my ass off. Like, I don't know how you could watch that and be like, that's a bad performance. Like, all right, get, get over it. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the comedy in this movie. And like from the very beginning, there's that scene where DiCaprio meets up with Robert De Niro's character for the first time. And I forget the exact line, but DiCaprio's talking about how he was injured in the war. And he's like, my guts busted or yeah. like I got a busted gut or something yeah. like that. And I just like cracked up in the theater with my wife. Like we were the only people laughing at that moment, but I feel like that was kind of intended to be funny. I mean, it's obviously talking about like a horrible thing that happened to this, this guy or whatever, but no, like, it's definitely there, supposed to be funny. Yeah. There's some, there's some real humor to this movie. Leonardo um, DiCaprio is so good at playing a dumb guy. Oh my God. He's like, uh, like that's his true calling. Like this and Wolf of wall street, I think are like, to his best performances. And in both of those movies, he's playing a big, dumb idiot. And he's so good at it. Yeah, but like Wolf of Wall Street, he has the style to almost like hide behind, you know? Yeah. Like I, I love that movie and I love his performance in it. But like there's such flash to that movie. Yes, that character is a moron and a terrible person. And Ernest Burkhart is a moron and a terrible person in a totally different way. And the physicality and like the, um, you know, what is required of DiCaprio, he's not able to, to really hide behind the sort of glitz and glamour that everybody brings, you know, the baggage that everybody brings to uh, what a DiCaprio performance is. It's, it's so stripped down as Ernest Burkhart in this movie where he's just like, 
hunched and sort of he's got those awful fake teeth yes. and like everything just looks you know crumpled and rumpled and as if he'd just been like thrown out of the back of the truck and rolled six times and then like got up and walked four miles <laughs> to wherever he was supposed to be you know he's just like he looks so so um uh, unmovie star like and like i i guess there's I'm I'm falling into the trap that that so many people fall into in terms of like biopics and stuff where people are like, oh, it's a transformative performance. Give him all the awards or whatever. But I, I really feel like he is doing something totally different than what we've seen him do before in this movie. Yeah, it's 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 really not like anything he's done before. But again, he's really good at playing dummies. Just yeah. play more dummies, DiCaprio, please. <laughs> okay, let's take a break and then we'll be right back. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, Chris, what else have you been watching recently? So I saw The Killer, which is the new David Fincher movie. I got to see it at a screening. It's going to be on Netflix, I think, this Friday, actually. So you you all will be able to see it very soon. Um, and I liked it. I did not love it. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a David Fincher fan. This is like a lesser David Fincher movie, but a lesser David Fincher movie is still better than most people's movies. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's got that David Fincher style where everything is so pristine and precise and deliberate and calculating. And that's actually built into the narrative of the movie because it's about this very calculating and precise assassin. And uh, I said this in my review. A lot of people have said this. It's not like I'm the first people to, to, to read into this that way. But it really feels like this is David Fincher sort of like laughing at himself because it's about it's about a perfectionist. And everyone knows, I think like anyone who knows anything about David Fincher, they know he's a perfectionist. He's infamous for, you know, doing like, like, hundreds of shots just to get something perfect. And that sort of feels like what this character in the movie, Michael Fassbender plays an assassin who, you know, he's, he's, he's very calculated and he's all, he's, he's deliberate and he's trying to get the perfect shot literally, you know, with a gun instead of a camera. Mm-hmm. And so the movie's about, um, he's an assassin, uh, at the beginning of the movie, he's trying to do a job and he, it goes terribly wrong and then he has to deal with the fallout. And that's really it. It's a very simple movie and it's, uh, it, it's almost like deceptively simple because you, you're like, oh, is this really all the movie's going to be? But it's very entertaining. Like, I don't want to give the impression that it's a bad movie at all. It's 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 a lot of fun. Like, it's not going to be on my best of the year list or anything like that, but it's a very enjoyable movie. And, you know, if you, you've been craving a new David Fincher movie, because he hasn't directed a movie since, um, I think, Gone Girl. Or no, what was the last movie he directed? Uh, I'm trying to think. Gone Girl was 2014. Um... 
Oh, Mank. He did Mank, Mank, which is okay. Of course, yeah. I like Mank. The this is this is more fun than Mank. So yeah. So if you're you're craving more David Fincher stuff, you'll 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 dig this. I was surprised to hear you say, Chris, that it, it feels like David Fincher laughing at himself. I mean, he he does actually have, I guess, despite his reputation as being you know the guy who made Seven and like uh, the game and and you know even. I don't know. I, I guess that there's, I think, a general perception that is, I, I think, incorrect that David Fincher doesn't really have a sense of humor, but like some of his movies are pretty funny as well. Yeah. Um, but the killer in in the trailers that I've seen has not struck me that way at all. But you're saying this movie seems to be him like, you know, obviously the Fassbender character in, in your read is like uh, a stand in for Fincher himself. Right. Yeah. So like where's the humor there's there's like a self-awareness to to this movie that you think is there it's got a very very dry sense of humor michael fassbender narrates the entire film and his narration is very it reminded me of uh you've seen barry linden right i have yeah just recently for the first time so you know how barry linden has that very dry darkly funny narration where it's like it's very matter of fact but if you stop and listen to it it's like oh this is actually very funny yeah it's it reminded me of that it has that that very dry sort of sense of humor narration to it okay cool yeah i'm excited to check this one out uh the killer is coming to netflix very soon what else have we been watching chris i finally saw bottoms i got a screener a, a award season screener for bottoms and uh i feel like an asshole because i did not love it i liked it but everyone seems to love this movie uh everyone and i was i was excited to finally watch it because the hype was so extreme and I just thought it was okay. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm not a better person. <laughs> I, I liked it. I don't think it's a bad movie at all. There's a lot of stuff in this that made me made me laugh. The characters are very funny. Uh, it, it's very absurd. It's got this absurd streak to it that I really liked. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of like Heather's sort of, it's got that sort of like vibe to it. Mm-hmm. But, but I did not love it. I did not love it as much as everyone else. And I, I was like, man, is there something wrong with me? Because I'm not loving this as much as everyone else. But I, I liked it, but I didn't love it. <laughs> I was going to ask if the reason that you didn't love it as much is because of the humor. Because like for comedies, I find myself so frequently feeling like I'm on the outside in when it comes to critical reactions to things. And it's just, I think, because humor is like obviously like so subjective. And a lot of stuff just is not funny to me that people are like, you know, crying, laughing and falling out of their seats in the theater next to me. And I'm like, what on earth are you people laughing at? I just feel like I'm on a different planet sometimes. (laughs) But, um, but it sounds like some of the humor did work for you. And I feel like this movie is fairly consistent with the type of humor that it has. So it must not have been that, was it? No, the humor worked for me for the most part. I just don't know. Just something about it didn't quite, I, I feel like the tone is a little wonky. Like it wants to be, absurd and not absurd at the same time. And mm. I feel like it needed to pick a lane for lack of a better term. I feel like it needed to be either more serious, not, not serious, but more straight or more. And I should use the word straight either. Cause it's about uh, queer people, but <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say. Yes, it, yes. it needed to be, it needed to be more straightforward or more <laughs> absurd. Like I, I feel like it, it, it was straddling the line and it needed to go in one direction or the other. But again, I didn't hate it. I, I laughed, you know, I, I, I didn't regret watching it, but I just did not love it as much as everyone else seems to have loved it. Okay. So that's bottoms. I think that's available for digital rental it's right on Hulu now. right now. Actually, Oh, great. Right. Okay, cool. Um, I had a chance to watch uh, starstruck season three, this show. I'm, I'm not sure if there's going to be another season beyond this. Have you watched any of this show at all, Chris? No, I have not. This is the rom-com from Rose Matafeo. It's on max. 
And uh, I think Brad and I enjoy this show. I think I've talked to him about it in the past. I want to say I, I talked to BJ about it as well. Um, but she plays uh, this woman in London who is who basically like falls in love, almost like, um, uh, God, what is the name of the uh, romantic comedy with Julia Roberts and Notting Hugh Hill? Grant. Yes, yes. It's like a Notting Hill type of situation um, where she like strikes up a, a fledgling romance with this um, super hot movie star. And... Uh, and then it's the entire show is just about like whether or not these 20 something people can like get their acts together enough in order to be together and like get over their own issues and stuff. And it's, it's very charming. And um, the episodes, the seasons are very short. I think there's like six episodes in a season and they're all like 30 minutes long or something. So you can like really burn through it in a night, which is what we did. And um, yeah, I, I think this is like one of those rare comedy shows that it just, does not miss a beat. Like the first season I thought was great. The second season, well, I, I guess maybe I should take back my general assessment there. Cause I, I actually think second season was like pretty good, not quite as great. And then season three returns really, I think to the, to the greatness of season one. I, I loved uh, how they sort of wrap this story up, maybe temporarily, maybe for real. Um, and uh, yeah, I would encourage people to look, you know, look the show up. If you're looking for just like a nice 30 minute thing at the end of the day, um, this movie has like some really good, uh, jokes, but it's it's mostly about like the characterizations and just watching these um, really charming people in in these uh, situations. So that is called Starstruck. Uh, I also watched a new movie called Pencils versus Pixels. Have you ever heard of this, Chris? Uh, I only heard about it because I've gotten like fifty emails about it. And I have I don't know really what it is. <laughs> yeah, so it's a documentary about two uh, D animation versus three D animation in um, mostly American movies, and um, it is really interesting. Did you ever see that movie? It was called uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty. From, yes, I have seen that. Yeah, yeah. So that was from like the early two thousands, and that was like a really good sort of behind the scenes. Um, tracing of the Disney Renaissance, which started with uh, Sleeping Beauty, or I'm sorry, started with um, Little Mermaid in like the late 80s and really like helped. Um, there, there was a, a succession of Disney animated projects that really helped uh, elevate the company and bring it out of this really dark period that it was in where a lot of its animation projects were not succeeding. And this movie um, feels like a spiritual successor to Waking Sleeping Beauty. It, it covers some of the same ground, but it does actually get more into the differences between 2D and 3D and like why the industry decided as a as a group basically to push more toward 3D. And these folks, you know, the artists that are uh, interviewed in this, there's a bunch of talking heads, people like Alex Hirsch from Gravity Falls and Seth MacFarlane from Family Guy and uh, Jorge R. Gutierrez, who did uh, The Book of Life, and this guy named Sergio Pablos, who did this movie called Claus, or uh, excuse me, Klaus, that is on uh, Netflix, that has like become a family holiday staple for me and my wife. Um, all these animation folks, and Kevin Smith is in there as well, because he, he did the uh, Masters of the Universe uh, animated series, so he's able to speak from a place of authority in terms of animation as well. Um, but yeah, all these folks, like, they're artists, so they love the 2D stuff, and they're kind of like um, disappointed that the industry has gone in a like a fully has like really fully embraced 3D stuff, and and has not really um, has kind of like left 2D in in the dust. And this movie gets into why that happened, and I don't really want to spoil it because that's kind of like the crux of the whole film. Um, but I would recommend watching this if you like animation, and there's so much cool like behind the scenes stuff, and they show you like. Uh, 
those those really old school things that you used to see maybe if you if you're um old enough to remember watching like uh like Aladdin on VHS or something in the, the very beginning of that movie I think from if my childhood memories are serving me correctly there would be like a behind the scenes thing looking ahead to uh the Lion King and they would show the animators like flipping back and forth almost like a flipbook style through the drawings that they were doing to make a character move and come to life and like all of that stuff the, the kind of behind the scenes stuff of what the animators are actually doing there's a lot of that footage in here and i love that stuff because you almost never really get to see that except in you know a featurette or something like that which is pretty rare these days especially because 2d is all but gone uh but anyway pencils versus pixels is the name of the movie and i, I would recommend checking it out um, I also had a chance to watch a movie called Chevalier. This one is on Hulu as well. This came out very early this year, I think. Uh, it, I know it debuted at, at um, TIFF last year, and I think it came out in like April of this year. Did you see this one, Chris? No, I haven't seen this yet. The opening scene of Chevalier is something that I'm probably going to try to argue for in our 50 best movie moments uh, conversation when we have that uh, probably in, in January, um, because I love, love, love the opening of this movie. I'll just give you like a brief glimpse, which is this guy who um, the, the main character of the movie, Joseph Bologna, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's the Chevalier de St. George. He's played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., who is a really, really talented up and coming actor. And he is uh, in the late 1700s. He, uh, there's a, there's a uh, concert that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is performing at on stage. And Mozart is, you know, like has the crowd in the palm of his hand. He's just like almost dancing around the stage, playing the violin. And there's a whole orchestra behind him. And he's just like eating it up and everybody's loving it. And he asks for, um, uh, like requests from the crowd. And this guy in the, in the back of the crowd says, Hey, can you play this song? And he also says, and do you mind if I play with you? And <laughs> Mozart is kind of like, uh, okay, who's this jackass who thinks he can come play with me? Yeah, sure. Come on up here. And, and then they basically get into like a, the equivalent of a guitar battle, but with violins on stage and this Chevalier character just absolutely wipes the floor with Mozart. Uh, and it's a really, really incredible moment. So you've just, you've just sold me on this movie. I'm going to yeah, watch this movie. That, Chris, unfortunately, and I, I hate to say this, the movie kind of goes downhill from there because the, ah. the, the opening scene is so incredible that I was like, oh my God, I'm like amped up to watch this. This is like unbelievable. I love the style of this. And it's fine. The rest of the movie is fine. And, and there's some good performances in here. Uh, Lucy Boynton from Sing Street, a bunch of other stuff is in this. And she, she you know, she's the, the uh, female lead. She's fine. I really did like Kelvin Harrison Jr. as the lead, but I just kind of felt like there was something missing from this, uh, from this movie. I don't know that it, it, it kind of like falls into just feeling like a typical costume drama at a certain point, even though it's dealing with um, race and class and, um, you know, the, the idea of like what it means to be at the top of Parisian society. Um, so it, it explores some interesting territory. There's also like this revolution undercurrent that, that comes into play. Um, but I, I just didn't end up loving the movie, but there is, I would say it's, it's still worth watching. Uh, and there's that opening is like really, really special, I think. So, uh, the movie's called Chevalier and it is on Hulu right now. 
The last thing that I wanted to talk about is a movie called Theater Camp. Did you see this one, Chris? I have seen this, and I, I really enjoyed this movie. I liked this, too. I thought I was going to hate it. I watched it begrudgingly because, honestly, like, theater people, the, the whole um, concept of this movie is, like, a down-and-out theater camp needs to basically, like, raise the money to um, keep this camp open. And it sounds, like, so cheesy of a... Such a, like, a, a cheesy concept. And the idea of watching a bunch of um, self-proclaimed theater people like do their thing is kind of like nails on a chalkboard to me, but I really liked this movie a lot. It has a lot of heart and the, the you know, I feel like they struck a really good balance of like getting the story right. And then also letting this great cast that they've assembled have each of them have their little moments without really going too far and making it really like super cloying, which is kind of like a word that I associate with whatever it is that theater people do, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I just thought they, they really like struck the perfect balance here. And this is a movie that was directed by Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman. And Molly Gordon is, um, she plays Carmi's love interest in the bear season two. Uh, and she also has a, a main role in this movie. Uh, Ben Platt is in this, um, Ayo Itabiri is in this. Uh, Jimmy Tatro, the guy from <laughs> American Vandal, the, who did the dicks, uh, season one is in this. And I thought He's he was great so too. He's so funny in this. Like, I, and I also love that that character has like a heart to him. Like you think he's just going to be like a dumb, like, you know, but I, I love that. Character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I was very um, pleasantly surprised to see that I, I liked this movie quite a bit. So I would definitely recommend this one. Um, you know, thinking back to, to watching it, Chris, did you have any like moments that, that stood out to you or like uh, performances or anything that you wanted to, to shout out? I just really love that the musical, they were like the part of the, the plot involves them writing a musical. And I just love that the musical they write is actually like legitimately good. Like yeah. it's a good <laughs> musical. Like the songs they write are really good. And like, there's, uh, this is, I guess this is like a spoiler, but whatever, I'm going to spoil it. There's this thing where there's Molly Gordon's character has to write the, the, the big finale number and she, she doesn't have a chance to write it and she makes it up on the fly and it sounds awful. And then they play it at the end of the movie and it sounds amazing. Yeah. I was like, that's such a great gag the way they, they pulled that back. So I, 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 this movie really it charmed me. It was a charming movie. Yes, super charming. Like I had a, a smile on my face on my face pretty much the entire time. Just like a really, really, really uh, enjoyable, feel good movie. So if you're looking for something like that, this one's called Theater Camp, and it's on Hulu. I also I want to add. I, I googled this. The official Hulu account has uploaded the first seven minutes of Chevalier on, online, so you can just watch that scene, everybody. Oh, okay. So you can skip the movie and you can watch this amazing sounding violin <laughs> duel. <laughs> awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that's going to do it for today's show. You can find more about a lot of the things that we mentioned on the show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for the episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.